Let's read out loud together from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. Should be there found in your bulletin. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and if it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but at having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning to a portion of your word and a topic that we will need to surrender ourselves to. And I pray that you would find us doing that, Lord, surrendering ourselves to your word and your will, receiving what you have said through your apostle and accepting it and obeying it. And Lord, I pray that we would do this as an act of worship to you. 
Help us, Lord, in these moments to hear your truth and to respond to your truth and to love your truth. And equip us, Lord, in so doing to live your truth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we looked at marriage in the big story of the Bible. What we saw is that the Bible, from beginning to end, is really about marriage. Or more accurately, we could say it is about one particular marriage. The marriage between Christ and his people. We saw last week that human marriage is just a temporary picture of this real thing. And when we get to the new creation, we're not going to need human marriage any more than you need a baseball card at a baseball game. The picture will become unnecessary when we're living in the real thing. Now, last week, we also spoke about some of the implications of this view for us today, because we are living in this time of already but not yet, where human marriage hasn't yet been abolished. We know it's on its way out. It will not be there in the resurrection, as Jesus said. But in our time today, it, it is still around, and it can still be a good thing. And so those of you who are married were challenged last week to make your marriage about the mission. And one of the big ways we do that is by obeying Ephesians 5, to 33. We make our marriages reflect the gospel, and we use our marriages for our mission of good works that God has given us to fulfill. Now, we, we ended last week by reflecting on the fact that because human marriage is not ultimate or permanent, and it's on its way out, it makes sense that marriage shouldn't be the most important thing in our lives. We shouldn't build all of our life around it. We shouldn't build all of our hopes and dreams around it. And today, we're really just going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to talk about how this big picture view of marriage applies to those who are not married. Today, we're talking about singleness. In some ways, my message this morning is really simple. That passage that we just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is God's word. Deal with it. That's my sermon this morning. But of course, that's quite unsatisfying. And so we are going to say more than that. And we're going to begin by going back and revisiting some of the big moments in the Bible's story. And we're going to reflect on how singleness fits in to this whole thing. So first, you'll remember how the storyline of the Bible is based on a series of covenants, beginning with Adam and Eve, moving through Noah, Abraham, Israel, David. And as we read the Bible, it's clear that being married was the normal default position for adults within those, each of those covenants. That's just what you did. That's what everyone was supposed to do, grow up and get married. And marriage wasn't just normal in those covenants. Marriage was required. So think, for example, of how God told Adam and Noah to be fruitful and multiply, have lots of babies. God promised Abraham many offspring to, to make him very fruitful, to make him a great nation. And fertility, having children, was one of the blessings God promised to Israel. And so having children... And therefore, getting married was a really crucial part. And in all of that, there was this promise, or rather this series of promises of an offspring. 
Remember the offspring of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent, the offspring of Abraham who would bless the nations, the offspring of David who would rule the world. And this was a person who was going to be born. And so therefore, being a part of the fulfillment of God's promises required that you had babies. That was very central to the whole thing. Therefore, marriage was a requirement. And, and so this helps us understand, and we're going to talk about some of this next week. We're going to talk about family and how having babies fits in with, with all of this a little bit more. But it helps us understand why you read that story in Judges about, about Jephthah's daughter who realized she was never going to be married. And she went out and mourned for two months when she realized that she'd never be married. And it says that afterwards, each year, the young women would go lament for her for four days every year. And we don't even celebrate our birthdays like that. And yet that's how, that's how much they mourned for this woman who was never able to be married. So I think we can see not being married was a really big deal. It was essentially to be cursed in each of these covenants. So that's why as we read through the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 56 comes to us as such a surprise. You can turn there if you want, Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to come back to these words next week in, in, in our message on family, but let me read these words to you from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I don't know if we understand how meaningful these words are. See, a eunuch was a man who had been rendered physically incapable of having children. And in that covenantal arrangement, that was awful. He could play no part in fulfilling God's covenant promises. There's a law in Deuteronomy that would have barred him from gathering with God's people in worship, essentially cut off from the assembly. And he would have had no children to bear his name after him. When he died, he would have been forgotten. And that would have been it. Talk about a sad life. But here in Isaiah 56, God is saying that something different, something new is coming. He's promising out of the blue, it seems, that to these eunuchs who obey him and are faithful to his covenant, he's going to give them a monument and a name within his house, not just as good as children, but better than children, better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will never be cut off. So where is this coming from? Well, it shouldn't surprise us. This passage, Isaiah 56, is coming in a larger section of Isaiah that is looking forward to the coming of Jesus and the arrival of the new covenant. Right? Isaiah 56 is just three chapters after Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant who dies for the sins of his people. And we're going to talk about that next week as well. And it's in that context of looking forward to the new covenant that God looks at these people who previously would have had such a lonely, sad, separate life. And he says, no, you're, you have access now to an eternal reward better than sons and daughters. 
Isaiah is pointing us forward to a day when being married and having children will not be the most important thing for us. Isaiah is pointing us forward to a day when the unmarried and the childless will be able to be just as honored and even more honored among God's people than the married and the fruitful. And these promises came into fulfillment with the coming of Christ. Oh, there's so much, again, I keep talking about next week because I, I want you to know these two, these three messages, but this week and next week are so connected with each other. But what we can say for now is this, that with the coming of Christ, the days in which people need to be married and bear children are behind us. In Christ, being unmarried, being single, now stands alongside of being married as a very good way to spend our life and to be useful to our master. We see this in the New Testament in a variety of ways. The first one's obvious, isn't it? Jesus was a single man. And I think we often kind of blow past this too easily. We think, well, of course, Jesus was single. He's Jesus. But no, I think we can forget how radical this is. You remember our study in 1 John from the spring and summer, don't you? Jesus wasn't just a disembodied spirit. Jesus really came in the flesh. He was fully a man, as much as any of you men in this room are. Hebrews 4.15, he in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he was never married. Do you realize how unique Christianity is among the religions of the world? We worship a single man. Very unique. And next to Jesus, arguably the most influential person in those first decades of Christianity was the Apostle Paul, who was also single. And we can't just say, well, of course, Paul was single. No, many of the other apostles, or at least some of the other apostles were married. But the man who God used to plant the most churches and write most of the New Testament was a single man. Are you beginning to see how singleness affirming the new covenant is? And we haven't even gotten to our main text this morning, but let's do that now. 1 Corinthians 7, we just read. This passage that we read comes in a chapter where Paul's been addressing some very specific questions about marriage and relationships that the Corinthians have. What's interesting is in the beginning of the chapter, Paul actually had to defend marriage against some people in the Corinthian church who were saying that no one should get married. And Paul, in the first, if you read in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 7, he has to say, well, no, marriage isn't inherently bad. Marriage can actually be a good thing for some people. But then he goes on to give the Corinthians some reasons to consider not marrying and remaining single like he was. That's what we find in our passage today. I just want you to take that in. There is a whole section in God's word written to help people consider why they should not get married. Have you ever taken that in before? The first of these reasons for singleness is introduced in verse, verses 25 to 28. There's really kind of three sets of reasons or three arguments that Paul makes here. And the first one it opens up with those words, now concerning the betrothed. Betrothed means engaged to be married. Now there's a problem here. 
because the word here for betrothed literally just means virgins. If you have an ESV Bible, you can see where it says betrothed. There'll be like a little number up above there. And if you go down to the bottom of the page, it'll say, just in the Greek language, it just means virgins. That's all that it means, which in this context is referring to people who have never been married. So why does the ESV use the word betrothed? Well, the reason is is that down below, and I want this to be too technical, but down in verse 36 and 38, Paul uses this word, and there it's pretty clear he's talking to people who are engaged to be married. But up here, there's scholars and just guys like me who say, you know what, that doesn't make sense that we would say it's betrothed. No, this makes sense. He's just talking to people who have never been married in verse 25. Now concerning the virgins or concerning the unmarried. And in view of, or in, in, in this context, talking to these people, Paul says that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, which means remaining single. Right? End of verse 27. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And then he gives the reason for this at the end of verse 28. Here's why he's counseling them not to seek a wife. He says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Here's what Paul's saying. The single life is a simpler life. It's freer. Marriage is a lot of work and brings a lot of troubles with it. So why would you bring that on yourself? That's the question Paul's making us ask. Now, this sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? We're going to talk more about this later. This sounds so counterintuitive that many people try to explain this away. Well, you can't be saying that. So what some people do is they zero in on those two words in verse 26. Present distress. In view of the present distress, it is good for a man to remain as he is. And so what some people say is that there was this particular problem at Corinth, like a famine, right? So there's this kind of a really local crisis. And in that particular situation, marriage wasn't the best idea. But for the rest of us, those, these words don't really apply because we're not in that situation, so we should all just try to aim for marriage like they did in the Old Covenant. There's a little bit of evidence that there may have been some food shortages in Corinth at this point in history. And so maybe, just, just maybe, Paul is encouraging them to remain from, refrain from marriage just for that specific reason. But not all scholars are convinced by this. This present distress, it could just be talking about what all of us as Christians face at this stage of redemptive history. But let, let's, just, let's, let's just do a thought experiment here. What if, when Paul says, in view of this present distress, what if he's talking just about a single specific famine in the city of Corinth, and it's only for those people he's telling them they shouldn't get married? Do you still notice that marriage is something we can live without? It's not the be-all and end-all of life. And we should also pay attention to what Paul says here is that marriage does bring its own troubles with it. That's especially true if that marriage produces children. 
I've been at many weddings where someone has gotten up and said something corny like, marriage, it halves your burdens and it doubles your joys. You know what? That's not true. Sorry to burst your bubble, but if 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is God's word, then that is not true. Because here in this passage, Paul's advocating the single life as a way to reduce some of life's burdens. Now, Paul gives us some more reasons to consider singleness further down in in verses 29 to 31. This is really kind of his second set of reasons. And we should notice that what he says here has nothing to do with the situation at Corinth, right? So even if those verses we just looked at have to do with this famine at Corinth, when we get to verses 29 and following, what he says here is nothing to do with that. So we need to really listen up because this is for all of us. And what he says, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. Verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. So here, do you notice Paul's not talking about a a famine at Corinth? Rather, what Paul's reminding us here is what we've been learning about in this series. The kingdom of God is here. The age to come has broken into our present age. And, and this present age, the stuff that we see and touch with our eyes, it's, it's on its way out and it's going to disappear entirely when Jesus returns and makes the new earth. And if we know this, if we know that this present form of the world is passing away, then, then we just can't keep on living like everybody else does. That's what Paul's really saying in verses 29 to 31, where he says things like, let those who have wives live as if they had none. How's that, husbands? What what happens to you, mind, as you hear that? Where he says, let those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What he's saying is that if we know this present form of the world is passing away, we can't be as invested in all this stuff the way everybody else is. It's kind of like when you play Monopoly or some other board game. I'm competitive. If I'm going to play Monopoly, I play to win. But I also recognize that in a few minutes, it's just going back in the box. It's not really real. That money that I worked so hard to win, it's not going to really have any value in a few minutes. And you know what? That's actually true about what we call our real life. These things around us, the the money in your bank account right now, that's just monopoly money in the age to come. All of this stuff around us is so temporary, including our marriages. So if you're married, this does not, this passage about what we've just read, let those who have wives act as if they had none. That's not an excuse to neglect your wife and neglect your marriage. But what it does mean is that you shouldn't worship your marriage and make it the center of gravity for your heart and your emotions and your life. Your marriage should be a platform for good works instead of a dead end for your selfishness. And if you're not married and you know that all this stuff is passing away, and you've got just a short amount of time to invest in eternity, then should you even consider diverting some of your attention and energy into a temporary relationship like marriage? That's the question this passage is asking you to ask. 
Finally, Paul introduces us to a third set of reasons for singleness in verse 32, where he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And he goes on to say that a married person has divided interests. They want to serve the Lord and serve their spouse, and it's hard to do both well. Something's got to give. We can look at Paul's life for proof of this. I mean, Paul was free to fully invest his life in the kingdom because he wasn't married. He could go anywhere, do anything, and had a freedom that someone with a spouse and children simply wouldn't have had. If Paul was married, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. Or all like the, the whole history of Christianity would be different. And Paul counted that a privilege, and he's interested in others having that same privilege. That's what he says in verse 35. He says, I I want to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So what do we do with all that? I mean, it sounds like there's some good reasons to not get married right there. How do you know unmarried people if that's the right thing for you or not? Well, that question really comes into focus in verses 36 to 40, where Paul's speaking now directly to those in the Corinthian church who apparently were engaged to be married. So these are people where they're now betrothed. And they now know what they now know, and so they've got a decision to make. Well, should I I go through with my plans and get married or not? What should they choose? Well, here's the advice he gives them. Verse 36, he says that if they're not behaving properly with each other or if their passions are strong, and if it has to be, then they can go ahead and get married. And then he adds this, it is no sin. That's for you married people. By the way, you didn't sin, at least for these reasons, you didn't sin when you got married. That's how strongly this passage argues for singleness, that it has to tell People, it's not a sin if you get married. But then in verse 37, he plays the other side of the fiddle. If those engaged people have determined in their heart to remain single, and if they have their desire under control, which, by the way, doesn't mean they have no desire. It just means they have it under control. Then they do well to remain single. And verse 38 is there to sum this whole thing up and absolutely shatter our North American way of seeing things. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Yeah, you heard that right. Singleness is to be preferred. Some of you, you may have noticed that as I've walked through this passage that I've never, I haven't said anything so far about the gift of singleness, quote unquote. I'm not going to say a lot about it this morning because I'm going to post something on the blog this week. But there's this idea that there's a spiritual gift of singleness that enables people, gives people the special ability to be single. And if you have that gift, then you should be single. Stay single. But if you don't have that gift, then you can forget 1 Corinthians 7 was written and go out and work your hardest to find a spouse. I don't believe that idea is biblical. 
In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, which is where that idea comes from, Paul says, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. There's two gifts, marriage and singleness. And the gift of marriage isn't some special ability to be married. At least no one I know has that. The gift is being married. It's a gift. Therefore, the gift of singleness is not some special ability to be single. It is the state of being unmarried. It's a gift. And it's a gift because it gives you the freedom to invest yourself more fully in the good works for which you have been created. So like I said, more on that that I'm gonna put up on the blog this week. But let's sum all of this up before we get into application, which we're gonna spend some time in. First Corinthians seven tells us that the single life is a unique gift from God, which many Christians should thoughtfully embrace as the best way for them to glorify God in the short life that we've been given. Now there's a good chance that this idea is brand new to you this morning. I know how countercultural this is. I know how countercultural this is. Haven't we all been taught by word or by example that adulthood equals marriage? Haven't we all been taught by word or by example that getting married is what all of the normal grown-ups do? Haven't we all been taught, either by word or example, that singleness is a problem to be fixed instead of a gift to be invested? Isn't it true that in our church culture, if a couple gets married, even if they just use that marriage to settle down and get comfortable in a material North American lifestyle, that they will still be celebrated and looked on as if they've arrived way more than a single person who is quietly, busily investing their life and time and talents into the kingdom of God. Isn't that true? I want to suggest this morning that most of us have done with marriage what the prosperity gospel has done with money. We've taken these Old Testament scriptures about family and children and marriage, and we have haphazardly applied them to our lives today without stopping to ask, which covenant am I in? What's different? Just like our relationship with money has changed in the new covenant, our relationship with marriage has changed in the new covenant. It doesn't help, does it, that we live in a culture that worships romantic love? Every song, every movie, every story assumes that a good and happy life includes being in a relationship with someone else. And in the Christian subculture, it's all the same. Every Christian book and movie, it's all the same. It's just that, you know, you get married. Many of us don't have many role models of normal, healthy, spiritually fruitful singleness. Except, you know, there's Jesus and the Apostle Paul. So maybe we don't have an excuse. 
Maybe we've just let ourselves be conformed to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed by the renewal of our mind. Maybe we've let ourselves get suckered in to the world's way of thinking about things instead of allowing ourselves to be shaped by God's word. So what can we do about this? I'm going to end here with some specific encouragements for different groups of people that might be represented among us today. First of all, I'm going to talk to parents in the room. Parents, especially parents of young children. You have a huge role in shaping your child's expectations for marriage. I was a young adults pastor in Regina. We would talk about this, and everyone said the same thing. Well, my parents just always told me that marriage was what I should aim for. Isn't that true for most of us here? Parents, steward your children's expectations well. I'm going to give you an example of that. Do you know how many times I've prayed with my two boys for their future wives? Zero times. Why would I do that? Why would I pray with my two boys for someone who might not even exist? I don't know if God wants them to get married or not when they grow up. I don't know if they're going to live their life for the glory of God best as a single person or as a married person. So why would I pray with them in such a way that is going to train them to expect marriage for themselves and train them to feel let down by God if that doesn't happen or doesn't happen on their timeline? So I, certainly, I talk to my boys about marriage, but I say things like, if God wants you to get married, here's the kind of husband you should be. If God wants you to get married, here's the kind of woman you should marry. But remember, God doesn't want that for everybody. It's, there's different gifts, and the most important thing is that you use your life for Jesus. Parents, parents, be careful about your children's media intake. Be careful about the ways that even innocent movies and innocent stories can reinforce the stereotype that you don't have a happy life until you've got a romantic relationship in it and that adulthood equals marriage. Be careful of those things. Point your kids towards a life of service to God, whether that includes marriage or not. Next, let me talk to you older children teenagers, college students. My guess is most of you want to be married someday. Some of you will. Maybe some of you shouldn't. But regardless, can I please encourage you to make the focus of your life something bigger than just getting married? For some of you, especially you college students, finding a boyfriend or girlfriend and eventually a husband and wife is the number one drive in your life right now. But I, I talk to enough people who get to their later 20s or 30s and say, oh, I wish I hadn't been so focused on a relationship in my younger 20s. That's all I thought about, and I missed out on so much. Because whether you get married or not, by the time you get to your later 20s, you start to gain perspective, and you realize that life is so much bigger than a relationship, even a relationship like marriage. And so if everything you've heard me say in these past two weeks is true, which I think it is, then the number one question, young people, teenagers, you should be asking is not who should I marry, but rather what part will I play in the mission of God? 
how and where can I best use my life to fulfill my mission of good works for the glory of God? Focus on that. And only ever marry someone if they will help you do that better than you can do it on your own. You heard me share a little bit of my story last week. I was single until I was 26. <clears throat> you heard me share last week. I pursued Amy and married her because I knew that I could serve Jesus in the particular ministry that God had called me to with that particular woman more effectively than I could on my own. But that's not true of everybody. Or it might not be true for a number of years. And that's okay. In fact, it might actually be better, according to 1 Corinthians 7. So make the mission the focus of your life. Put marriage in its proper place and use your season of singleness, how, however long it will last. Use it for God's glory. For those of you who are married, listening to 1 Corinthians 7 can make you ask should I have gotten married in the first place? Because maybe you just did pursue marriage because you thought that that's what everybody did and you needed to and you fell in love and that was that. Well, you are married now. And like we read in verse 36, you didn't sin when that happened. So instead of second-guessing your decision, which the New Testament never encourages us to, to do in regards to marriage. Instead, it simply says to those who are married, here's what to do. So go to Ephesians 5. Go back to last week, right? Make your marriage about the mission. Help each other live a life of good works. Live out the gospel together. Link arms with your married and single brothers and sisters here in the church. Throw yourself into the mission of God. And please, married people, please understand that those who are not married here in our church are there. Don't let them be invisible to you. Please know that the unmarried among us face certain unique challenges by living in a culture that's oriented around marriages and families. Singleness is a gift, but that doesn't mean it's not a lonely gift or even a painful gift. So let's stop asking people why they're not married. We must stop asking those kinds of questions. We must stop asking people when it's their turn. <laughs> Got to get rid of that stuff from our vocabulary. Let's remember that holidays and long weekends and Sunday afternoons, the times that you get to relax with your family can be really hard and really lonely when you don't have a family to default to. Simple things like your car breaking down are bigger deals when you can't just assume you'll have a spouse to pick you up at the mechanics. Don't treat the single men among us as less than real men because they're not married. Don't treat the single women among us as less than fully women because they happen to not be married. 
let's take good care of each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, and by the way, I think we do a good job of this at EBC, but let's keep pushing in to do this better, to care for each other better. And we're going to wrap up here. I know this is a lot to take in. If I have been successful this morning before the Lord, I hope that I have at least asked you to consider these things and made a strong case for them. I know you've got to chew on this and think about this. Please do that with open hands. Surrender to the Lord. If you need to change the way you think, do it. Don't fight God. Don't argue with him. We're going to end this morning by singing the song, By Faith. All of us, married or not, are children of the promise. All of us, married or not, walk by faith and not by sight as we obey Christ and invest our lives in the gospel and look to our reward. So let's be determined to do that together now and always. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the great and divine marriage between us, your people, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that all of us who know you have a share in this. I thank you for the gift of marriage that some of us get to enjoy and use for your glory. And I thank you, God, for the gift of singleness that some of us get to enjoy and use for your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the ways in which many of us at many times have allowed ourselves to be conformed to the pattern of this world. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Cause us, Lord, to be a church family where our marital status does not determine whether we belong or not, or whether we are lonely or not. Father, help us as Emmanuel Baptist Church to reflect all of what your word has called us to reflect. Be glorified among us, Lord, and help us to walk by faith on this truth. Amen.